American ideas being appropriated, being emulated, for better or for worse, around the world. And the worst idea we've ever had is suburban sprawl. It's being emulated in many places as we speak. By suburban sprawl, I refer to the reorganization of the landscape and the creation of the landscape around the requirement of automobile use. That the automobile that was once an instrument of freedom has become a gas-belching, time-wasting, and life-threatening prosthetic device that many of us need just to, most Americans, in fact, need just to live their daily lives. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is your guest for today. Welcome to Winwood Radio. I'm your host for your 5 o'clock hour, Discussions with Ian Trottier. Please go to my website, iantrottier.com, I-A-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-E-R. Check out any of my past episodes Drop me a line. Tell me what you're interested in. My objective is to educate, inform, and provide stimulating discussion for your Wednesday afternoon. Make that plural afternoons. Got a great lineup for you. Booked all the way through September. That there was Jeff Speck. He'll be joining us today from, I believe, presumably his uh, home in Massachusetts where he is a lecturer at Harvard, at Harvard and he operates Speck & Associates, LLC. His book, Walkability City, excuse me, Walkable City, is a wonderful guide to alleviating cars, Automobiles, our dependency on such. Okay, it's really up to us to do this. One time resident, I understand, of Miami Beach, Jeff knows this city quite well. And my understanding is he will address some of the cities globally, and certainly nationally, that are getting a passing grade on lessening automobile traffic and those that are failing. If you're local to Miami, your city is failing. If you're listening in Los Angeles, your city is failing. If you're listening in San Francisco, New York, your cities are passing. And from what I gather... From listening to Jeff, Portland, Oregon sets a pretty high standard for others to follow. And part of that means becoming a bicycle-friendly environment. Something that I think South Beach of Miami certainly tries to accomplish. But... They can't do that alone, and they must work with the outlying city of Miami and County Miami-Dade. So we'll hear Jeff's thoughts this afternoon. He'll be on in about 10 minutes and inform us a little bit more about what he's been studying and 
what he's been able to discover in how we can all create environments that are more conducive to less traffic, less stress, and certainly a more healthy way of life for us all. On my website, I-A-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-E-R, that's com, you will find links to another site, and I've been working with this fellow out of North Carolina for months now, close to a year, chem-talks, that's C-H-E-M-T-O-X.com. And that fellow who's based in the Research Triangle of North Carolina has been pretty intensely studying the effects of fossil fuels on children. He's got a master's in special education. And the numbers he finds are staggering. So, of course, on my show, I talk about pesticides. I talk about vaccines. And last week with Aaron Elizabeth, healthnotnews.com, we addressed those two topics, and we addressed holistic doctor deaths. Okay? And that certainly is no light matter. But apart from pesticides and other toxins in the environment, fossil fuels certainly are one of the most culprit uh, elements, if you will, um, toward an increase in diabetes, childhood diabetes. Okay, there's ele- other elements as well. And uh, Jeff may, may not allude to studies done about just essentially sitting in a car to get to a soccer practice, i.e., or sitting in a car to commute from school to a home or practice to home or whatever it may be. Um, and diabetes certainly hits all age ranges, but in a weakened immune system compared to that of an adult, the, uh, the child is affected more greatly by some of these toxins in our environment. Thus alluding to chem-talks.com and the numbers that they throw out, which show there's a massive rapid increase over the past couple decades. So, Jeff Speck coming on here for you this afternoon. Aaron Elizabeth's joined us, and uh, we, we that discussion was very long. Over two hours, Aaron gave us of her time. She's been featured on NBC, CBS, Fox. I direct you to Marcola.com. She works very closely with Joe, Dr. Joe Marcola, and um, again, she hits on some Riveting subjects, okay? Um, but Health Nut News is rapidly climbing globally as a top health and wellness destination. She's just got a little over three years invested in that. A week prior to that, we had on Olio. Olio is a, a tech company based out of London, a couple Stanford grads, Palo Alto, uh, that are engineering a food-sharing revolution. So very cool there. And 
prior to that, John Perkins was on New York Times best-selling author. Um, John spoke about being an economic hitman. And the second part of that episode, which you can find on my website, um, we are joined by Peter Lance, five-time Emmy Award winner. So we're, we're making strides here at Winwood Radio. Next week, we will host Amy Siskind. Uh, she's got a BA in economics from Cornell, MBA in finance from New York Stern School of Business. She currently is president of the New Agenda. And again, she's been featured on CNN, Fox News, CNBC, PBS, NPR, Marketplace Radio, New York Times, LA Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal. She dedicates her time now to empowering women and the LGBTQ community that she can reach. She's got a million views weekly of her called Amy's Weekly Authoritarianism List. Amy's Weekly Authoritarianism List. That gets a million views. So she will be with us uh, next week. Following that, we'll have David Serreta. And he, we're going to shift gears completely and go into uh, pyramids. And what's phenomenal about the subject of pyramids, everyone, we all know, the famous pyramid built in Egypt, Giza, But what the Chinese government seems to be suppressing a great deal is the fact that pyramids were built in China. These ancient civilizations built pyramids in China. And in particular, you can go to where the Terracotta Warriors were found, if you've heard of the Terracotta Warriors. And they were found in Xi'an, X-I-A-N. Now, inadvertently, this is interesting because... Four weeks ago, I hosted F. William Engdahl. He called in from Germany. And he's a guest lecturer at the University of Xi'an. It just so happens that David Serreta in two weeks will talk about the White Pyramid in Xi'an, the city of Xi'an, China. So some interesting kind of uh, circles. We will... Host, and I don't have it up on the site, but Dr. Love, L-O-V-V-E, will be joining us uh, later this month. And uh, we'll also have Brenna Porter on the show. She's an NCAA athlete. Her story is really cool. As she was rounding a hurdle, she gashed her leg. And uh, like a seven-inch gash, she got up and finished the race. Pretty phenomenal feat. So just a, a fun, cool, impressive story. And then starting out the, uh, the next month in September, we will host uh, the folks involved in the Underline Project here locally to Miami. And uh, that'll tie in, of course, to the conversation we'll have with Jeff today. All about getting people out of cars, on the street, walking, um, riding bicycles. And the Underline Project which covers basically in Miami, Brickle down to Dayton Mall. It's about beautifying and gentrifying the land below that uh, rails, that elevated rail track. Uh, getting light, you know, lighting it up and uh, making it uh, 
making it accessible and welcome for uh, families and such to uh, to exercise and uh, look at art. Now the other the other guests that I've had uh, uh, that I've added that we've added here for late September is Alfred McCoy. He's a Harrington professor of history at the University of Wisconsin Medicine. His book as a PhD grad out of Yale was almost thwarted being the publication thereof by the CIA. And that book is called The Politics of Heroin, CIA Complicity in the Global Drug Trade. He ties in CIA involvement to opium trade. His new book, In the Shadows of the American Century, is available on, on Amazon. He's received the prestigious Wilbur Cross Medal presented annual by the U, uh, Yale Graduate Alumni Association. He'll be joining us September 20th. So some really cool guests lined up for you. I will be bringing Chuck Morse back on. That uh, episode was uh, was very was very shady so uh, i'll bring that the, the audio on that was was really bad so i'll, I'll be bringing chuck morris back on i'm going to cut to a quick break i'll be back with jeff speck Waiting for you, 
Okay, I am back, and I have with me urban designer, city planner, uh, total cool, awesome dude, Jeff Speck. Jeff, are you there? I'm here. Cool. All right, awesome. So are you are you in Boston right now, Jeff? I am, and there's a bit of a thunderstorm here, so if you hear some loud noise, that's... that's- <laughs> That would explain it. <laughs> okay. Well, we had uh, we had some pretty massive rainfall down here in Miami yesterday, flooding. And uh, I understand that uh, that you at one point lived in in Florida, in Miami Beach, in fact. Yeah, I spent ten years. I actually made a mecca to Miami <laughs> in 1993 when I, when I got out of architecture school uh, to work for the world's best. Uh, urban planning firm, uh, Dwani Plater Zybert, which you probably know about, which is based in Miami. Um, and I essentially mentored with Andres Dwani and Elizabeth Plater Zybert for 10 years before um, breaking off on my own. Uh, and I have my own small firm now here in Boston. Okay, very cool. And uh, that would be... Um Spec and Associates, correct? Spec and Associates LLC. Correct. Yeah. And you and I and yeah. I lived uh, I lived in South Beach, in the heart of South Beach, really beautiful spot. Uh, and even back then, it flooded uh, pretty often in the summer. <laughs> and and I would enjoy I would take off my shoes and roll up my pa- roll up my pants, <laughs> get from my car to my apartment, and that was a lot of fun until I heard what was in that water. <laughs> 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 Very cool. What was in it? What did you hear? <laughs> well, I heard it was mixing with the. It was mixing a bit with the sewage. <laughs> <laughs> a bit, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's uh, that. That'd be an understatement. Last week, I had on. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this uh, website, Health Nut News. You, you're probably, if you're not familiar with that, you might be familiar with Marcola, Dr. Joe Marcola. Okay. 
and and uh, yeah. Aaron, who runs Health Not News, is uh, very close to uh, Dr. Mercola. But but um, uh, Aaron and I had a long conversation, interview, discussion about uh, pesticides and uh, the other stuff, uh, other things that get 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 put into our uh, into our uh, uh, our drinking water, uh, you know, by means of, of runoff and whatnot. But uh, yep. you know, very very interesting stuff. So so actually, uh, it. It is, and and I'm not going to mention a name, but there's uh, the, the the reason that uh, uh, the reason that that you and I have connected and connected, and I appreciate you accepting to, to come on this show here. Um, was uh, there's there's somebody that I know that that currently is uh, working uh, on uh, their masters uh, in at, at at Harvard, and and it, it it brought your book to my attention, and uh, and so tell us about. Um, walkable city uh it's interesting because you and i have a couple different a, a few different um a, d- a few different sim- similarities in in that uh in that we've got that we got the the, the south florida connection uh, i was also an art art history minor um and uh and i spent uh i spent four years in in eugene so i know portland very well and i know that you use portland as a uh, kind of a, a template as how to make a city more walkable and certainly bike friendly but uh, tell us uh, tell us about about your book walkable city well portland is a city that just ends up coming up a lot in the american planning discourse because it's one of the cities in the u.s that has done the most that really did the most uh, in terms of its for its size you know there's some some cute little cities like davis california that have done amazing things but they don't um you know they don't have the population to really um, serve as, as as much of a model as a city like Portland, which is you know a pretty big city. Most people know about Portland. Many people have been to Portland. Um, and in, in the nineties, Portland made a bunch of decisions, kind of the opposite of almost every other American city in terms of having an urban growth boundary, um, in terms of stopping building highways, in terms of investing in bicycle infrastructure. So Portland is a useful model to study to see, you know, what happens when a city makes those kind of choices. Um, I think it's most useful in the American context, and most of the writing I do is about America, and most of the projects I do are in America. Um, it's a very different model in Europe. You know, I got back yesterday um, from a month in Europe, and, you know, the U.S. is just so far behind. <laughs> it's so sad. Um, and you see what they're doing over there in terms of the, the, the population, the, the mode split between bicycling and driving and how many more people bicycle and just how much more transit and walking is happening and just generally, you know, how much, how many fewer people are being killed and injured in car crashes, how, how much uh, of a lighter carbon footprint everyone has over there. Um, I think it's important to say that most of the work and recommendations that I make for cities are very much in the context of um, the, the limited uh, expectation, you know, that that we have in the in the U.S., where there's been this presumption and this history of um, uh, of automobile, you know, mandatory mass automobile enslavement, right? So, mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, in in that context, which I talk about in Walkable City, um, Portland is uh, is remarkable um, in the degree that they were able to actually reduce. You know, unlike almost any other American city, they spend less time in traffic now than they did um, in the 1980s. Wow. Because they actually uh, invested in, in things other than uh, new roads and making their existing roads wider, which is, of course, what uh, most American cities have done 
for a long time. But walkable city is a much bigger discussion about all the things that make cities great. Um, and uh, I cheat a little bit because I, I kind of use walkable as a stand-in um, for all the other great things about cities because I do think that if you think about cities, if most people think about cities in which they want to spend time and the cities that are attracting talent and the cities that are on the rise right now, um, you know, you'll realize that walkability is such a key feature um, that maybe it may be as much an indicator as a cause, but it's certainly a really important factor to pay attention to if you want your city to thrive. Yeah, and so you 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 bring up a very interesting uh, dynamic in regards. To, so um, Miami has uh, this kind of major traffic issue that's that's getting worse and worse, like like many most most cities. Most um, cities, yeah. And what what you what you the angle you go at it is look if we're going to add another lane then that really can it feeds the sprawl and um and 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 what we want to be doing is taking almost almost and correct me if i'm wrong but almost taking a lane away thus forcing people to seek that closer alternative um Whereas well, you're, you're clearly not you're clearly not a city planner because I would never use any of those words oh. <laughs> in a in a public forum. Uh, nor would I state that as my objective. Um, you know, we never try to force anyone into anything, and and uh, very rarely am I taking away in the work that I and my mm. colleagues do. Very rarely are we taking away lanes that are actually um, needed for for traffic. Uh-huh. I think you brought up a couple different overlapping issues. The first one is that what we've learned, independent of whether uh, of what the land use outcomes are, independent of what the you know sprawling outcomes may be, the main reason not to add lanes to streets and to highways is because we we've learned that that does not stop congestion. You know the mm-hmm. the the thing that you hear from people who don't study it and and don't understand it, uh, including many public officials and sadly transportation official mm. is that you can solve or reduce congestion by increasing roadway capacity, which is perfectly logical, but completely um, uh, proved false by all the data. Mm. So what we've seen, what we've seen time and time again, it's called the fundamental law of traffic, is that in congested systems, adding capacity actually the, the new capacity you add is met almost immediately with a commensurate amount of new trips, trips that weren't being taken, people who are not driving, precisely because of the congestion. Because, mm-hmm. it, because in congested systems, the principal constraint to driving is congestion. You know, people are making decisions about when to drive, where to drive, where to live, where to work, yeah. uh, how to get around as a function principally of the congestion. So um, as in any similar economic model, um, when you remove the constraint, then people change their habits and people start taking new driving trips. So the first thing is, let's let's understand that there may be reasons to add roads and to widen roads, but that fighting congestion um, is is never um, a reasonable uh, re- a reasonable excuse, a reasonable reason to use um, in that calculus. The second thing I'd say is, yeah. um, you know, both. 
how we get around and how we choose to live. You know, our transportation systems and our settlement patterns, to use the planning term, um, are, are a function of decisions that we make uh, about the, 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 the really the, the distinctions in travel mode. So, you know, in, it, it, there, people often ask the question, you know, chicken and egg, is it, is it all the driving that causes sprawl or all the sprawl that causes driving? Mm. And uh, I think one of the first things you learn as a planner is that, is, is that it's not chicken and egg. I mean, our settlement patterns are principally an outcome of our transportation decisions. So we do have kind of a vicious cycle that keeps repeating in the U.S. of, of you know, sprawl leading to more driving, leading to more sprawling. But yeah. the... the um, the fundamental decision that any community makes, or I should say any region or any uh, nation makes, about how it's going to be organized is what mode of transport it's going to prioritize and subsidize. And, you know, people always talk about roadway investment versus transit subsidy, but you could just as easily switch the words around. The fact is that all, all forms of transportation are subsidized it so happens that, um, you know, walking and biking are subsidized so much less per mile. Uh, walking and biking are subsidized so much less per mile yeah. um, that, that the, uh, you know, that that is a different um, category. But in terms of transit versus driving, um, it isn't that Americans chose to be a driving nation well, I think it actually, yeah. it, it, it's, it's not that simple. I mean, on the one hand, there was this incredible conspiracy, right, where the oil companies right. and, the, and the car companies and the uh, asphalt companies bought up the <laughs> trains and ripped out the streetcars and replaced them with buses and then limited the bus service and all this stuff that you read about. Um but that's in the context of kind of a national ethos where we were we were all, and I was around, I mean, not at the beginning, but I, I experienced some of this as a child. You know, I was around um, when all of American society basically embraced driving as the way of life, right? Okay. So, yeah. so on, on, you know, on the one hand, we made, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to blame the, the most nefarious actors, but... The fact is, this was in the context of a culture that was car happy, and so I think, I think it's important to think of it, uh, you know, as as much a cultural phenomenon as a, um, uh, you know, a conspiracy. Uh -huh. However, you know, we as a, you know, our laws and our public policies grow out of our culture as much as our culture grows out of our laws and public policies. So. Um, it's very clear that during the rise of the auto age, the um, American leadership chose to embrace and subsidize this form of transportation over others. And, um, you know, when the, the head of the Department of Transportation, you know, the Federal Department of Transportation was the former head of GM and, and said, you know, what's good for GM is good for America, that kind of represented um, a clear across-the-board set of policies in the U.S. Um, that made it very um, obvious for people to make automobile use their way of getting around, right? It was an sure. economic 
it was an economic choice built on a foundation of of policies and laws that that reinforce that choice. Um, right. But yeah. I mean, at some at some point in the you know middle of the 20th century, we made a decision as a country, and it's actually kind of irrelevant how that decision was made. But we made a decision as a country that automobile manufacture, oil manufacture, um, uh, and, and then highway building and driving was going to be the way that we were going to have mobility. And it's a choice that, that distinguishes us from many other countries in the world. And those are the countries now that have much healthier uh, lifestyles, much more sustainable lifestyles, and, um, you know, aren't causing the, the, the social, economic, and environmental crises that we're, we're causing to anywhere near as great extent. And is, is it because the American just demand, almost demands to be more independent? Is that, is that the love affair with, with, the, with, the, with the vehicle? I, I mean, you know, yeah. there's, there's certainly a political uh, correlation uh, you can find between conservative, quote, freedom-loving uh, voters <laughs> and more communitarian uh, liberal voters that draw, you know, what you see under under democratic establishment, uh, under democratic leadership, is more investment in transit and uh, more invest, more enthusiasm for biking and walking and all those yeah. things, and and for cities, you know, investment in cities. And what you see under more conservative leadership is a return to um, a focus on highway spending hmm. as a way to um, grow. And, uh, you know, I say this in the context of working in cities all over the U.S., many of which have Republican leadership. So um, I, I'd say I've probably worked in more Republican-led cities in the last decade or so than I have Democratic cities. Because people realize that they, they want to be competitive, and that being a walkable place is a big part of attracting talent and and um, succeeding economically. But um, I think there is definitely an aspect of the American ethos that sees the individual in the individual automobile as somehow uh, more emblematic of uh, our um, freedom-loving way of life. Yeah. And, and you, could, you can certainly see why um, that might be understood to be the case. The, the, the sad um, outcome of that, however, yeah. is, is that people now, thanks to the way we've grown around the automobile, have an incredible lack of choice about uh. how to live their lives. And that in so many countries, sorry, in so many cities um, in the U.S., their choices are incredibly limited because the only way they can get around is by car. And most of the places they want to get are a traffic jam away, right? Sure. So, yeah. um, you know, the conversation we like to have with cities, by we I mean um, city planners and others who are trying to expand choice, yeah. is to say, you know, we need a better balance between modes where people have the freedom to choose. I'm working this out, but tell me how I do. Where people have the freedom to choose between um driving or transit or cycling, and that they're not, you know, in, inexorably 
uh, link to this requirement, you know, to have what we what we call the automobile's prosthetic device just to live their lives. Yeah. And um, uh, you know, I think it's a it's a it's it's within that rubric of expanding choice that we can best argue for investment in these systems other than than roadways because. Um, you know, I think it's just useful to step back and think about it. You know, we we take so much of our uh, of our lives for for granted. You know, we naturalize the current condition and think that it's somehow inevitable. Um, but if you were an alien to you know to land on the U.S. and observe <laughs> life here, you would think that the principal life form on this planet are these you know two ton pieces of metal that have right. parasitic. These parasitic creatures that in, that <laughs> inhabit them, but the, the, just the, just the sheer idea that to to get a carton of milk or to get cat or, or or to get cat food, you know, you have to get inside and and bring with you. And, and you know, most vehicles are, are single occupancy vehicles, right? So just the, just the idea of one person one person moving around to get to school to get to the store to accomplish any aspect of their daily life has to move around with this two-ton piece of machinery. It's just absurd. Yeah. yeah. And, and the more you travel and the more you visit <laughs> other places that have chosen to grow in other ways, the more you realize that, you know, this, this constitutes the fundamental uh, forum of, of kind of waste and ridiculousness in our, right. in our species, in our society. Yeah. That, that, you know, that, you know, we, we, built the cars to give ourselves convenience and the cars created, you know, this is a uh, Ivan Illich talking who is dead in my years, but he basically said, you know, the car creates distance. You know, the, 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 uh, at first the car abolishes distance because it allows us to get yeah, more yeah. quickly. But the minute that the presumption of the car becomes the basis for the design of community, then all of a sudden everything is really far away. Because if you design a place assuming that everyone's driving, then that allows what became essentially the law of the land for 50 years. It allows these large areas of single use where even cat food can't be walked <laughs> to. And of course, school isn't walked to and work isn't walked to. And, um, you know, it used to be that work was not walked to, I mean, for a couple hundred years or a hundred years, let's say. Um, it wasn't very common to walk to work, but um, almost everything else, school and sports and um, the bar and, um, you know, and, every, and, and yeah. so many of us, you know, the, the, these were all things that we would walk or bike to quite, quite comfortably. The average house in average sprawl creates about six round trips per day, oh, six, round, six car round trips per day. And only one or two of those are to work, right? The rest are trips that we used to be able to walk or, or, or occasionally bike. And that's all been taken away from us. So, you know, yeah. unfortunately, the, the, uh, the kind of embrace of this tool of freedom, the automobile, that led to a form of design, sprawl, which has taken away freedom from so many people. So the cities that obviously did it right were, you know, nationally anyway, and, 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 and I'd like you to go internationally and tell us what you've learned in Europe and, and um, elsewhere, but, but 
domestically, uh, the cities that have done it right have kind of, I mean, New York, uh, that subway system, I believe, is over 100 years old. Um, San- New, York, New York subway is falling apart right now, and a lot of great, um, a lot of great transit systems have been underfunded so badly that even the best ones are, are starting to have daily crises. But um, New York has more subway stops than all the other cities combined. Wow! Actually, um, but the you know the cities. I let you finish your question, but I think I know where you're heading. And essentially, yeah, um, go for it. You know, the there's there's kind of two prerequisites to being a walkable city. Um, one is to have principally been built before, but to to have experienced most of your growth prior to, say, 1940. And that hmm. probably means prior to 1930 because of the Depression. Um, and then the second, you know, when, when the growth was not based on the presumption of automobile use, that's the first kind of prerequisite. If you've got nice, walkable neighborhoods of small blocks and narrowish streets, then that fall from before then. And then secondarily, to not have ruined yourself subsequent to that. So... <laughs> You know, yeah, you've got you've got um, a limited number of American cities that experienced most of their most of their growth before 1930, and then of those, you have a limited number that didn't just ream themselves out with highways um, right. in the years that followed, and the cities that ream themselves the least, like Portland or Vancouver, if you want the best example of a city that has no highways running through the city center, um, you know, or to a lesser degree. Um, you know, look at the island of Manhattan. Look at Washington D.C. that was going to get highways all all through it and managed to to only get one major highway, 395, kind of ripping up its center. But the the cities that are the most intact, the healthiest, and, and have, have retained their real estate value um, the most since the middle of the 20th century are those cities that did not allow themselves to be ripped up by highways. Uh, and actually, there's a a wonderful study that was done comparing different cities' highway investment and property value, huh. um, both American and Canadian, and it found that whether a city was American or Canadian was much less important than simply how many miles of, of highways were allowed to go through the city. And the more highways you built, the more you devalued urban real estate. And the fewer highways you built, the more your downtowns were. Interesting. Very interesting. So, um, I, I mean, obviously, a city like L.A. and Miami, they're 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 playing a catch up game, and it, it could take e- even if these cities were to get realistic, it would take decades. Well, to... L.A. and Miami are, are uh, It's nice to you mention those in one sentence because <laughs> while they're while while they're different scales, they kind of have a similar condition which is that they're American cities that um, have great walkable neighborhoods. Yes. But, but considered as a whole are not walkable because you kind of need to get, you need to, you need, if you're going to get from great neighborhood to great neighborhood, you need a car. Um, and, you know, L.A. is getting better at that. Um, Miami is getting slightly better at that. Um, but, you know, Miami is a, is a city that... Um, uh, you know that if you could if you could isolate your your work and your life 
yeah. your work in your home to South Beach or to Coconut Grove right. or to Coral Gables or to a couple other places, you can live a pretty walkable lifestyle. And my, my uh, experience in Miami was to uh, come home every Friday night to South Beach and I'd have to make a really good you know, mental note about where I'd park my car because I would not be seeing it again until Monday morning. Awesome. You know, I mean, and, and actually my group of, I have a group of friends who, you know, we were a real ragtag group of kind of different kinds of people. <laughs> cool. Uh, my friends, when I lived in Miami, we shared two things, which was a love of playing pool. Uh, and, <laughs> okay. also, and also we all lived in the same neighborhood. And I think so much the friends that, that we chose, you know, us choosing each other, was the fact that we could all have this lifestyle. And, you know, we could go out and have a few drinks, so more than a few, and not have to worry about how we were going to get home. And, um, you know, when you're, when you're um, mating age, which so many people in Miami are, <laughs> and, and you're, you know, out having a good time, um, being in a walkable city or a walkable neighborhood is, a, is a, actually a tremendous life safety um, you know, boom, because the amount of drunk driving that's going on oh, is astonishing, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, L.A. is very similar. L.A. has great neighborhoods, yeah. uh, but it's like there's so many of them and they're so far flung. And the challenge to be a, for, a, you know, a place like that to be more walkable is using transit to connect those walkable places to each other. Right, right. Yeah. So... Okay, so let's get into um, some some uh, some of these cities that, that that you've been studying and working with in Europe that are doing it right. Copenhagen, I'm just I'm just kind of throwing out a name there because that that seems yeah, to be I a mean, place the, that the, what you see in uh, you know what what you see what I was seeing most recently this past month in Europe, um, and I was mostly in Italy, but. Uh, okay. I was briefly in Portugal as well. Um, what you're starting with is kind of a better building blocks, you know, cities with better bones, cities that never rein themselves out with highways. The highways that exist are much smaller. The, um, you know, a lot of people still own cars. And if you look at the metropolitan areas, not just at the inner cities, um, there's still a fair amount of driving. But, of course, it's a lot less. And, and just everything's a lot closer together. But the other thing is that the suburbs in these cities tend to be higher density and they tend to be on transit. So the kind of the, the biggest difference between American sprawl and, uh, you know, or American suburbs, let's just say, and Italian suburbs or, uh, you know, what they call the peripheria or the, the same concept in France or other European cities is that, you know, they, they never really embraced the way that we did the single-family home as the principal increment of growth. And so uh, you have much more efficient systems of, of transport and much more affordable um, lifestyles for folks because they live in uh, apartments that are often, um, you know, that, that often have access to the city centers um, via, via transit. Also, um, you know, the employment areas still tend to be concentrated in older city centers. Um, or in other places that are transit served. So, you know, in America, you have this crisis where even if you are able to give someone a, you know, who's just entering the workforce a home that's adjacent to or uh, accessible to transit, 
our jobs have become so far flung. Yeah. And our, our, our employment centers have become so suburban that, you know, that you can't get to it unless you have a car. So um, there's that factor as well. There's just a lot more concentration on transit of housing and of jobs, even outside of the city centers. But from a planning perspective, as, uh, you know, in terms of what cities are doing right now, most planners are most interested in looking at places like the Netherlands and, uh, and Denmark, where not, not that long ago they weren't that different from the U.S. I mean, obviously a very different scale. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, Amsterdam in the 60s did not look so different from, say, um, Boston in the 60s. Mm. And there were cars everywhere, and um, not that many people were biking, although more than in the U.S., but nothing like what you see now. And they made a really important decision in the 60s to start investing in, um, in bicycle infrastructure, um, or probably more to the point, to, to invest less in car infrastructure. But just, just to presume, same thing in Germany, um, same thing in certain other northern European countries uh, like Denmark. Um, to just presume that they were going to have things closer at hand, you know, less demand for mobility because your house and your job and your shopping and everything else is still in your neighborhood and not that far, you know, things aren't that far away from each other. But also this um, kind of embrace of the bicycle as the, um, as the tool for expanding geography as opposed to the automobile. So... Um, you know, what you have now in Copenhagen, it's astounding. Five times as many people bike to work in Copenhagen than drive to work. Wow. And if you can believe that. Wow. I mean, it's just jaw, it's, it's jaw-dropping. And what makes it most astounding is that these places were not so different from the U.S. a mere 50 years ago. You know, Amsterdam, um, like I said, Amsterdam and Boston were not that different 50 years ago. And, you know, Boston's one of the most walkable U.S. cities. That's one reason why I live here. Um, but it's just night and day to compare any even great American city to what those places have accomplished. So it, it kind of – so how did, how, did, how did they do that? How did they make – uh, how did they make that appealing to um, – how, how, how were they able to achieve, to achieve that? That's – I mean that's – that's astonishing. Uh, that's yeah, an astonishing. I mean, principally, figure. it's you know I think I think bicycling is as a form of commuting is inherently appealing if you make it feel safe. Okay. And that the 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 biggest challenge in the U.S. to biking is not cultural; it's it's uh, you know life safety and and the um, the way you 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 address that is by both providing good bicycle facilities, ideally which are separated from fast-moving cars, but also just to not have the cars moving so fast or in such great number. You know, the typical bike lane in the U.S. is on a street that has a lot of lanes, and the lanes are probably too wide, and the cars are probably going too fast on them. And so, you know, in the context of of European streets, which are narrower Mm -hmm. and lower speed, it wasn't as challenging to, you know, introduce bicycling to them um, in terms of, you know, your likelihood of getting killed. 
But in addition, so so in addition to having the cars moving slowly and not as not well more slowly and not as much in a highway configuration, then there was this um, multi-decade investment in bike lanes which were out of the street. So what you see in Berlin or what you see in Copenhagen or in Amsterdam or other Dutch cities is um, you know many decades of this condition where you have the, the street and the curb, you know, maybe cars parked on the curb, and then you have a raised sidewalk, and the outer part of that sidewalk is, is bike lane. Very right? cool. Um, and it, it takes a while to get used to as a pedestrian, and most Americans who go to Berlin or Amsterdam, they, they the first thing they say to you is, oh, my God, I almost got killed by the bicycle. Ah. It takes a while. It takes a while, me too, you know, to, to learn where you walk and where you don't walk. But the fact is, you know, it, Everyone is safer in these streets in which there's cars and there's bikes and there's people and everyone's mixing. Um, but in designated zones, once you get the hang of it, um, you know, people don't wear helmets over there. And oh, boy. They don't need to. Okay. You know, there's uh, wow. almost nobody, almost nobody in in uh, the Netherlands or in Denmark is wearing a bike helmet. Wow. And, um, a lot of people take that to mean that wearing no helmet makes you safer. And in fact, there are some studies in the U.S. that show, for example, that when, when you're wearing a bike helmet, cars will pass closer to you. And actually, if you if you wear a blonde wig, they pass further from you. So there's all these things you can do. But the, um, you know, the, the so th- there is some data to suggest that it's called risk homeostasis. People adjust their behavior to experience a certain level of risk that they're accustomed to and and so certain things like bike helmets um, or the absence of, of I guess, blowing, blowing tresses of blonde hair <laughs> cause drivers to pass closer to you because they're less worried about you. But the, uh, I think that's all within the context of understanding that the places where people don't wear helmets are places where it's so much safer to bike. Um, and, you know, I always tell people... Um, uh, I'm, I'm certainly against helmet laws because helmet laws reduce bicycle population. Um, few, you know, the, when, when you make a helmet a mandate, you actually really cut down the number of people who are going to bicycle. And okay. the thing that, yeah. that seems to make cycling safest is the number of cyclists. You know, it's, it's a strength in numbers yeah. theory. Okay. Um, when drivers are anticipating cyclists in the roadway, when you know, having bikes in the street is just a everyday aspect of, of the urban environment. That's when everyone's safe. And anything you do that limits the number of cyclists, we learned this in New York in reverse, you know, anything you do that limits the number of cyclists makes cycling more dangerous. And if you have more cyclists, always, as you have more cyclists, each cyclist becomes safer. Um, but the the idea in the U.S. that that people shouldn't wear helmets, I'm actually... Um, personally against as someone who bicycles and wears a helmet just because I always say I have children, you know, and I, okay. <laughs> I care whether I live or die. Yeah. But, um, you know, one of my favorite, if I can, if I can blow my own horn, one of my favorite lines from my book um, is that people, you know, somehow magically think that that the wind blowing through your hair turns your city into Amsterdam. <laughs> you know, but, <laughs> Just because you don't wear a helmet doesn't mean that you're any safer. And in the U.S., biking is 
is just in most places biking is dangerous, right? But yeah. the um, uh, yeah, so in in Europe, you know, the typical bike is very upright. The handlebar the handlebars are are taller. You're not hunched over like a racer. You're not wearing spandex or whatever. Um, <laughs> you know the typical American bicycles. We still like to say is is a mammal, a middle-aged man in lycra. Um, but the 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 handlebars are taller. People are dressed in their work clothes, um, often very elegantly, and it's just their way of getting around. Like they're walking to work or or driving to work. They're biking to work in a low stress, lower speed, although. You know, some of them do seem to go quite quickly, um, but it's just a, it's just a it's a way that the society evolved in response, I think, to infrastructure. You know, to a decision to make the streets safer for everybody, and then to provide designated bike lanes for people who wanted to cycle. Yeah, it kind of makes me think Europeans overall may be a little more health conscious than americans in the sense that you know we're busy eating our fast food and i mean just just locally here one of the reasons i started this program in january was the the zika versus the dibrom spraying and and of course the european uh union has banned the use of dibrom uh, uh puerto rico rejected it and i think it may be i it may be that europeans are just a little more in tune with eating better and exercising and so maybe that was an element of kind of embracing um the this more walkable city well i think um, americans are a bit more diverse than europeans at least from where we come from um but also across the country and even in different parts of individual states you see great varieties of lifestyle and um parts of America you could point to, you know, I'd point to, to much of California and much of Colorado and a few other places where I'd say there's more focus on health than there is in Europe, you know? So oh, okay. um, Americans are not monolithic by any means. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you say we're eating, we're busy eating fast food. I'd say we're eating fast food because we're busy. Um, okay. You know, we've created, we've created this lifestyle, which is all about the extra hour that we spend each day, if not more. Yeah, driving and tra- driving in traffic, and and that has shaped so many of the other choices that we've made. Interesting. So how 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 in 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 what you do? Um, obviously, I, I'm I, the the biggest thing for me is you know, the gasoline, the fossil fuels. This industry's got to be diminished. And and okay, so if we transfer from gas and we go more electric or hybrid. That's that's a great thing, but how do we and how how what's your major uh, or angle of approach to um, get cities or even even federal uh, departments of the federal government to, to 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 try to get governments local governments to to focus more on um, alleviating traffic, uh, in, in investing more in public transportation, um, making creating these more walkable uh, living environments. What is your, you know, what, what do you use as kind of your main, um, if you will, selling point to, to try to get people to, to, to start to build that type of infrastructure? Well, first of all, if you, if you read my book, Walkable City, you'll, you'll read why I don't 
I, I mean, more than you have, because I know you've heard some of it, uh, you'll know that I'm not a fan of hybrid vehicles. I think it's essentially an excuse for people to drive bigger and faster cars and feel good about it. Um, I do think that uh, eventually electric vehicles may pose some form of uh, improved mm-hmm. um, environmental outcome. Yeah. But in the, US, in the U.S., in most places, an electric car is a, is a coal-powered car. So you're trading, mm. you know, a, you're, you're basically trading a hydrocarbon for a carbon, which is even worse. Okay, interesting. Um, um, and uh, a really good book on, on this subject about what, what green really means is, uh, is Green Metropolis by David Owen, who's a New Yorker writer, and I quote him a lot in my book. But Green Metropolis is really um, to the point about how um, even changing the source of fuel doesn't overcome the essential American, I should say, the essential kind of suburban automotive condition where, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the, the fact of everyone owning and driving cars causes us to spread out, causes incredibly inefficient infrastructure, um, causes us to live much larger on the land and to consume much more. And to that, I would even add, you know, creates these lives full of suburban kind of isolation and anime that cause you to consume more things because you're trying to make up for that hole in your life that comes from having no community. <laughs> so you yeah. buy stuff, right? So there, there's all that to be discussed. But but more to, to the point, uh, you know, what do we do about it? Well, you know, the federal government until recently, I'll just, I'll speak kind of non-denominationally and say the federal government until recently um, had a bunch of programs that really were, were looked at were place-based in their investment. You know, they didn't just throw money at transportation or throw money at, uh, you know, at housing, but said, you know, let's identify actually places where it all comes together and invest in transportation and housing and, and, and jobs and health and everything in, in neighborhoods with the understanding that um, it's the neighborhood that's the ultimate source of, um, of a healthy quality of life and not just how much mobility you have or how much housing you've built. Um, needless to say that the current trend in the federal government is, is away from that. Um, and, uh, but, but even during that time, I would say as, as, a, as a city planner or someone who cares about making places better, uh, my colleagues and I were not looking very much at, at the federal government or, frankly, at state government, which, you know, if I can speak a little out of turn, I'll say that... that uh, both levels of, uh, I don't think you need me to tell you this, but, but you know, currently in the U.S., both of those levels of government are so beholden to corporate interests. Yep. I'm not using the, I'm not using the word corrupt. Oh, I just did. Uh-oh. Um, <laughs> that, you know, they're so beholden to corporate interests in the cycle yep. of, 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 you know, funding and lobbying and, um, um, you know, campaign finance that they're no longer making decisions that in any way reflect the desires of the citizens that they uh, contained. So um, we don't look to the state with much hope. We don't look to the, to the states with much hope. And we don't look to the federal government with much hope. But what we do find um, is tremendous, um, uh, you know, gains being made city by city, neighborhood by neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, uh, you know, almost all of my my public clients are cities and neighborhoods, not, um, you know, not larger than that. And you see, if I can you know, pick one group of people, you see mayors making tremendous changes in their cities. 
And, um, you know, a number of mayors I know, one friend of mine who I won't mention is, uh, you know, have and will run for governor. And I'm like, why would you do that? You know, the, the being a mayor is so much better than being a governor because you get to focus on a place, you know, uh-huh. and, and, uh, and you can make change. You know, what we've seen, because in community people know each other, they know their place, and they care about their place, you can make tremendous change within a community. And the changes we make typically are to, uh, you know, at the very, the very first uh, level, basic level, is to make streets safer and to create bicycling, biking infrastructure, to improve transit systems, um, to, as you alluded earlier and I kind of denied, to in some cases reduce the number of lanes and streets, but we do it <laughs> where the streets are kind of too wide anyway. You know, the, 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 the interesting thing about a lot of American cities is that even if they're largely congested cities, most American cities in their downtowns have a lot of streets that aren't congested and in fact have more lanes than they have traffic. In almost mm-hmm. any city you can do is a very simple calculation, street by street. How many lanes does a street have? How much traffic's on the street? How much traffic does a lane hold? You know, it's very simple arithmetic. And you find a lot of opportunity for turning car lanes into bicycle lanes. We're turning ah. car lanes into turning car lanes into parking lanes where the parking has been uh, removed over the years, you know, to add more driving lanes, which actually weren't taken up by cars. So in a typical city in which I work, like a Cedar Rapids or a Grand Rapids or an Oklahoma City or a, a Tulsa, um, there's actually a lot of streets where there's room um, for converting unnecessary driving lanes into uh-huh. other things including into green space. But in most cases, because of the expense of moving curbs around, what we're successful at doing is keeping all the curbs and everything where they are, but just restriping the street to serve uh, bicycles and or tarp cars more so than, than driving cars, which are uh, quite happy before and quite happy after because they have excess capacity. Very cool. Very good uh, way to look at that. And and what Jeff, what's a what's a city that you're working with right now that that you see making great strides in this? And in, and I'm going to use that 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 title from that book. So I like it. I like that kind of phrase to being uh, becoming more of a green a greener metropolis. What's what's a, a current city that that uh, that we could look to? Well, a city that a city that we did that too, and we. Um, have completed that effort in is Oklahoma City. Um, I have similar thing, a similar uh, experience happening right now in uh, Cedar Rapids uh, in terms of changes on the street um, that are already happened that have already happened. Um, we're currently right now we're doing the same thing to Des Moines, Iowa, where we've proposed a restriping of their downtown network, very dramatic restriping there. Um, there seems to be a lot of support for. Um, and, you know, literally, and these are just the ones that I have my fingers in, but literally there's probably 200 cities around the U.S. that are dramatically reconsidering the way that their um, streets are designed in their downtowns. And with that with that last piece of good news, I should say, I have to go. Okay. Yeah, we got a little bit of <laughs> overtime. Sorry. I'm sorry not to uh, have allocated more time. I thought this would be a quicker conversation, but um, there are a ton of 
cities making these changes, and I think it really does start at the streets, because if the streets aren't safe, no one wants to walk or bike. Um, and I would direct people to my website, jeffspeck.com, J-E-F-F-S-P-E-C-K.com, where there's a lot of uh, good information. Perfect. And your, and your book is available on Amazon, Walkable City. It is, Walkable City, and uh, if you go to Amazon and read about it, hopefully you'll, you'll want to have it. Jeff, thanks for joining uh, Winwood Radio. Thank you so much. Uh, it was my pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation. Okay. Bye. Okay. Uh, bye-bye. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeff Speck, city planner, urban designer, ar- author, Harvard lecturer, author of Walkable City. So we just received some real incredible information, independent New uh, independent radio station. So going over is okay, um, and uh, and 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 if if my guest uh, is is able to do that, I, I I think we you know we 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 can go over that. That's okay. So we're very fortunate to to uh, to have Jeff go over with us a little bit. Um, I'm slotted for that five to six hour. Uh, last week, uh, Aaron and I went over, but uh, again, independent uh, radio. So we we don't uh, behold to any uh, any real timelines, at least in the slot that I'm lo- I'm at, and, and we certainly don't behold to any um, anybody's uh, anybody's viewpoint. So uh, what was really cool, I thought was really cool about that com- uh, discussion conversation with Jeff was how he um, he doesn't he's not relying on the federal government. It's and that's one of the basis of of of. Of, of of what I bring to you every Wednesday uh, evening is that our our government and he didn't want to use the word or kind of slipped out but um, our, our government is so corrupt on so many different levels. Look and, and the fact of the matter is and and, and 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 it didn't come it didn't I don't think there was the uh, I don't think there was the angle uh, to um, uh, to 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 talk about it, but the fact of the matter, as far as I'm concerned, and as far as I can see, is we have become dependent on automobiles, and that's a lot by design. Of course, there's a yin and yang. There's a there's a there's a little bit of a there's a little bit of a um, uh, 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 a to and fro on that because you know we are we we the people are the government but but the fact of the matter to use that word corruption we do know we do know that there are um, there are networks and societies and families uh, that are intertwined in um, shaping very powerfully how we conduct our day to day life what we do know is that a gasoline-powered automobile, and Jeff brings up a good point, uh, we've got to be careful with the, with the electrical cars now, um, as, as it's basically feeding into the, the coal industry. But, um, but, but what we do know is that we've got to get these cars off the road. We've got to get people more on bikes and walking. And um, the fact is, man, any time we put a penny... Uh, of gas into our tank from a gas station we're fueling the petroleum industry and and if you've listened to me before you connect the dots the 
powers that be that govern certainly the Federal Reserve are in large part where they're at today because they control natural resources globally that are oil fields. Okay. Now, um, so there's a lot of different ways that we can look at this, but we know from a planning, okay, um, Jeff approaches the issue from a very um, kind of subtle perspective. And, and like you heard him say, he doesn't rely on the federal government. He goes in, he gave the comparison between a mayor and a governor. Okay, It's got to start locally to wherever you're listening from. It's got to start in your city, in your town. And that's where it's got to start to get more people walking and more of us biking. If you can design your day-to-day life to where you can work from home or you can find a job that's within walking distance or biking distance, do it. Yeah, do it. You're going to be healthier. You're going to be happier. You're going to have less stress. I mean, all the, all the signs, all the things you can, you can kind of allude to, that's um, a win-win. It's a win-win for you. Um, use your vehicle not as a prosthetic device, you know, not as something that you become dependent on your day-to-day, but use it more as an optional feature. To go visit grandma a few hours away on the weekend or, you know, whoever it may be. Okay, use it for a purpose that's not stop and go, a purpose that's uh, more conducive with um, longer travel. I, there's just, just kind of a couple thoughts that, that I had. So um, we're very fortunate today to have Jeff on the show. Thanks for listening. Next week we will talk about empowering women with Amy Siskind her website and uh, nonprofit the new agenda okay just as it sounds the new agenda.net the new agenda.net um, and then also as I'd mentioned as I was mentioning check out her blog Amy's weekly authoritarianism list gets over a million views weekly she'll be joining us Next week at five, the 515 mark. I still I open up at 5 o'clock. Go to my website, iantrache.com. Follow me. Look, listen to my past episodes. Check out my past guests. Look at who else I've got lined up for you. Go to Jeff Speck, jeffspeck.com. Um, you can also look at... Um, you can also look at uh, uh, his company, Speck & Associates. Uh, and I think that's that's actually uh, that that'll actually uh, that's actually jeffspeck.com. Um, we'll take you there. So um, thanks for joining. I'm your host. Until next week, Ian Trottier. Until next next week, be awesome.